0: My name is Nolan. I'll be continuing our reading from God's Word this morning. We'll be picking up in Genesis chapter 18, verses 22. We'll be reading all the way through chapter 19, verse 38. If you do not own your own Bible, you can follow along using one of the Bibles that are located on either end of your pew. And if you're going to use one of those Bibles, we'll be reading from page 13. Again, that's Genesis chapter 18, verse 22, all the way through the end of chapter 19. (laughs) So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are fifty righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom fifty righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold... I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the fifty righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for the lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find forty five there. Again he spoke to him and said, Suppose forty are there. He answered, For the sake of forty, I will not do it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He says, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, Oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again, but this once. Suppose 10 are found there. He answered, For the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man, surrounded the house. And they called a Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight?' Bring them out to us, that we may know them. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him, and said, I beg you, my brothers, to do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you, and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, Stand back. And they said, This fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Escape to the hills, lest you be swept away. And Lot said to them, O nor my lords, behold, your servant has found favor in your sight, and you have shown me great kindness in saving my life. But I cannot escape to the hills, lest the disaster overtake me and I die. Behold, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one, and my life will be saved? He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore the name of the city was called Zor. The sun had risen on the earth when the lot came to Zor. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. But Lot's wife behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah and towards all the land of the valley. And he looked and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up out of Zor and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zor. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine We will lie with him, that we may preserve our offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also, Then you may go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father." So they made their father drink wine that night also, and the younger arose and lay with him. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Benami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. This is God's word for us today.
1: Well, when fire and brimstone come to mind, um, what do you tend to associate that with? Uh, w- what about when you hear Sodom and Gomorrah? What, what comes to mind when you hear those, those two cities? I'm willing to bet that many of you associate these phrases, fire and brimstone, Sodom and Gomorrah, maybe even with angry possibly even self-righteous Christians who almost seem to enjoy telling people that they're sinful and wicked and going to hell. We have a category of people almost who, who sort of believe in that stuff, those fire and brimstone people, and it's not a very good category. I want to be honest with you today. This is one of those passages you would skip If you were not committed to expository preaching and going through books of the Bible one at a time, this one is not entirely magnetic like like, like a John 3.16 might be, for instance, but I hope we're going to see that skipping this passage would be a grave mistake because we need to hear what God has to say here, as hard as it may be. There is so much more to this story of Sodom and Gomorrah than most people would assume. Uh, and there is an incredible lesson in particular for us to learn here, of all things, believe it or not, about the mercy of God. Yes, even in the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is a very long passage, you probably have noticed. Uh, we're covering two full chapters today, but I think we're going to see this is clearly one story meant to tell one important point. And for all the chaos and the sin and the destruction in this story, and there's plenty of it, uh, there, this is really a story about Abraham learning a lesson as he sits outside of his tent. We're going to, to cover quite a bit. I don't want you to get lost in the weeds. So I want to tell you right up front here that in, in chapter 18, three men visit Abraham on their way to Sodom and Gomorrah. But... but uh, When he finds out what they're actually going there to do, Abraham really struggles with this, and he starts to argue with God in defense of the city. And what we're going to see is that there is something very specific God wants him to learn from the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Chapter 18. Then for most of 19... We read this dark and chaotic story of Lot being rescued out of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we get lost in the drama of that story, it's going to be really easy to almost even forget about Abraham until the author circles back to him in chapter 19, verse 27, when he sees the smoke billowing on the horizon like a furnace, it says, in the direction of Sodom. And Gomorrah, and then we will see, hopefully, the dots have connected. Hopefully, Abraham has learned the lesson that he is about to learn. Now, again, we have a lot to cover. Uh, so without wasting any time, let's walk through this story. And as we do, let's consider what is the claim that God is making here? What is the lesson that we ought to learn? How should we be shaped by it? Okay, so Bible's open. The story here of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right away, chapter 18, verse 1, it says, The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. Now, here's a detail that took me about three days of sermon prep to understand. So I'm just going to give it to you right away. I think it's going to be helpful. Two of these three men are angels. One of these men is actually the Lord. It's, it's Yahweh. Um, Now, it's kind of confusing, but if you look at verse 22, it says, so the men, they turned and they went towards Sodom, but Abram stood with the Lord, right? The Lord stays back. He's one of the three. Now, if you didn't catch on to this fact that one of these men is the Lord, you might think that all three men went to Sodom and Gomorrah there. But then if you look at chapter 19, verse 1, it says the two angels, so there's three men, two of them leave, the two angels who left came to Sodom. Two of these men are angels. One of them is actually Yahweh, which is an incredible mystery. And scholars would say, if you look back at the Old Testament, when you see these instances of Yahweh appearing in some ways as a man, um, it could very well be a pre-incarnate, miraculous appearance of Christ. And if I wasn't preaching two full chapters right now, we could talk more about that, but we're not going to. Okay, we're going to keep going. With that said, The first scene of this story is all about introducing us to the tension. It creates the tension. These three men show up at Abraham's tent, and right away he bends over backwards to greet them and get them some food. He's sort of ordering Sarah around, and he's clearly on his best behavior here, right? And while the four of them, he and these three men, sit outside of his tent, the Lord asks him, where is Sarah, your wife? And the narrator recalls here, the author shows us a couple details. First, it says that she was listening in, sort of, from the inside of the tent. And then he also reminds us of how old they were, and even the fact that the way of women, the, the ability to bear children, had ceased with her. But the Lord finally here, we're we're what, 18, we're like five, six chapters into the Abraham narratives, and finally the Lord says, this time next year, Sarah shall have a son named Isaac. Now remember, this is the entire point of the promise that began this whole story back in chapter 13. God said, I'm going to raise you up to a great nation, tons of descendants, and the nations will be blessed through you. And here they still don't have any children at all. But as Sarah listens in on this, notice it says she basically laughs it off. It says even that she laughed, this is interesting, to herself. Sort of an inner dialogue we're getting here. And she just basically says, like, at my age, like, really, is this actually going to happen? But the Lord perceives this, and then he calls her out. But notice, he doesn't call her out right to her face. He calls her out to Abraham, because she's in the tent, and she's doing all this in silence. But she turn, he turns to Abraham, and he, and he says, well, wait, wait. why did your wife just laugh at me? And he even gets a little intense when he says, is, is anything too hard for the Lord? And this gets us to the whole theme of this entire series, the promise only God can keep. Are you questioning that? Is your wife in there giggling at me, questioning this, Abraham? And then Sarah, (laughs) who hasn't said anything so far in this story. She's been in the tent making the food, okay? She pokes her head out, seemingly, of this tent for her first line in the scene, which is basically, oh, no, I I didn't laugh. And, And I love this. The Lord says, no, but you did laugh. So, right, he just calls her right out. No, but you did laugh. Now, up to this point, it has not been entirely clear why these men came. And I think in this exchange about Sarah, what we're meant to see here is that she and Abraham still don't fully believe in the promise, or at the very least, they don't quite understand how it's going to happen. They can't really wrap their minds around it. They have a thing or two to learn here. And then these two men part. They leave, and as Abraham walks them away to sort of set them on their course— This is huge. The author gives us this fascinating glimpse into the Lord's thought process. So I want you to picture the three of them sitting there. Two of the men get up. The Lord stays back. Abraham kind of sees the two off. And then we get a cut to this: the Lord. And it says in verse 17, he said, presumably to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? In other words, Mm -hmm. Should I bring him into the loop here on what's about to happen? He keeps processing. Seeing that, he shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. In other words, he is the one the promise is coming through. The point is basically, it probably would be good for him to learn from what is about to happen here for the sake of this promise. For, he says, I have chosen him, and this is key, that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. In other words, this is crucial. God decides to tell Abraham what he's about to do in Sodom and Gomorrah so that he can learn a lesson about doing righteousness and justice. A lesson that he would then pass on to his children and his household after him. They will need to understand this apparently so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what has, he has promised. So that this whole thing can just kind of keep going and eventually happen. Now, we have to remember something here. That this was not written in the time of Abraham. This was written long after Abraham. And it was written to the children and household of Abraham after Abraham. So as the original reader would have read this, they would have perked up. They would have said, oh boy, we better pay attention here because we have something to learn from whatever's about to happen. And the Lord tells Abraham that the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, their sin is so grave, he needs to go and check on them to see if it's as bad as he thinks. And in response to this, there's a bit of a scuffle almost between Abraham and God. Abraham objects, and he starts to kind of negotiate with God. There's a few things we need to note here. Abraham is clearly calling God's character into question. The idea of God punishing this entire city was very unsettling to him, more than likely because, if you remember, his nephew Lot had chosen to dwell in this valley, in the city of Sodom in particular. We saw that back in chapter 13. And so he says, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Like, really, God? This is your move? In verse 25 he says, Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. In other words, you should know better than that, God. You're better than that. At least I thought you were better than that. He even tries to suggest that God is acting unjustly here. He says to the one and only living God, the God of Israel, he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Just imagine the audacity that would take. To utter those words in the presence of God. And imagine if you did how quickly you would want to backpedal. Which is exactly what he does. There's this hilarious actually, exchange. There is supposed to be comedy here between these two. Abraham says, yeah, so what if there's 50 righteous people? Will you destroy the whole city for 50 uh, uh, with these 50 in it? And God says, oh, huh, no, actually, yeah, that's right. I won't destroy the whole city if there are 50. I'll spare the entire city for just 50 people. Then, almost as if it's starting to click with him, who he's talking to and what he's saying, Abraham kind of comes to his senses, starts to backpedal, and he says, Okay, um, what what, what, what about 45? What if there are 45? And God says, Sure, if there are 45, yeah, I'll spare the whole city. And, and this happens back and forth, frankly, an uncomfortable amount of times. It's just, I feel awkward just reading it even. Until they land at 10. If there are 10 righteous people, 10, in all of Sodom, then God will spare the entire city. This exchange is supposed to reveal to us that while Abraham is assuming there are righteous people in Sodom, neither he nor God seem particularly confident that there are. The number keeps going down and down and down. At the same time, it's also supposed to reveal just how merciful the God of Abraham is. Oh, that we would not miss this, friends. This is what the world does not see or understand about the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. This is not an angry, power-hungry God who enjoys smiting people who have a little bit too much fun. No, he is perfectly willing to spare this entire city for the sake of just ten righteous people if you can find them. If you can find them. This is all meant to illustrate part of the lesson that God wants Abraham to learn here about righteousness, at the very least, an important part of it. If we assume that people just are righteous, we will almost always certainly assume that God is unjust. Do you see that? And now we're going to see how he actually learns the lesson. Now, from this point on, Abraham doesn't have much to do with the story. But in the end, we will circle back to him, and by then, hopefully, he will have learned the lesson of this story, and hopefully, we will have learned it along with him. Okay, now, that's all the backdrop to the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's now dive into the real action. We're going to walk through this story in scenes now, like a movie, scene one. As soon as these two angels show up in Sodom, they find Lot in the gate, which basically means he has settled in in this city to the point where he's actually some sort of a, a leader in the city. He would have been a representative at the city greeting the guests. Now remember, it was a conflict with Abraham that Lot, uh, because of a conflict of, with Abraham, that Lot chose to dwell here in the Jordan Valley. Here's what we read about that back in chapter 13. This is important. It said back then, and Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that this Jordan Valley was well watered everywhere like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zoar. And then this little parentheses that we had back in chapter 13, uh, this was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. And then in verse 13 of chapter 13, it even said, now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against The Lord. So we already know this. Lot chose to live here simply because it looked green and lush. It looked like he could make a living for himself there. But meanwhile, he completely ignored the invisible spiritual quality, all of the sin of the land. Now, that proves to be very true as soon as we get to the story of this city. When as soon as these angels arrive, Lot rushes them to his house. And before long, the entire city is trying to beat down his door. It even says, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they surrounded it, demanding that Lot hand these men over that we may, quote, know them, the crowd says. Now, without going into much detail here, uh, This is meant to show us the extent of Sodom's sexual sin. The entire city wants these men to come out of the house so that they can sexually assault them. And this shows us a theme that we've already seen in Genesis, uh, that this promise is going to come through sexual purity. It's going to come through husbands and wives devoted to one another, multiplying offspring who will Be blessed. Who will you be used to bless the nations? But when that plan and that promise is corrupted, it often looks like sexual depravity. It's not the first time we've even seen this, just in 18 chapters of the Bible. But the description of this crowd is particularly important. Did you catch that? Because the description of this crowd confirms there are not 10 righteous men in Sodom. There are not. All of them. To the last one, they're right here trying to assault these angels. So Abraham has clearly overestimated the righteousness of those in the city. Lot tries to offer up his daughters instead, but the crowd basically shouts him down and turns against him. And so these angels have to pull him back into the house, and then they strike the entire city blind. And the last thing we read about the men in this city... Is that they were all groping at the door like a bunch of blind and perverted zombies? I'm just the messenger. That is in your Bible. Scene two, verses 12 to 22. The angels try to rescue Lot and his family. What we're supposed to notice here is how reluctant they are to be rescued. When Lot tells his sons-in-law that God is about to destroy the city, it says here at the end of verse 14, but he seemed to his sons-in-law to be jesting. They didn't believe him. Then the angels try to warn Lot, listen, if you don't get your family out of this city, you're going to be swept up in the punishment of the city. And we read in verse 16, but he... Lingered. <laughs> kind of took his time. What should I bring with me here, right? <laughs> so they had to seize Lot and his family by the hand, and specifically it says, the Lord being merciful to him. That is one of the most important details in this whole story. The Lord being merciful, they brought him out and they set him outside the city. The Lord being merciful. And After this warning of Lot and his family, uh, they tell them not to look back even at the cities or the valley. And Lot says, okay, 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 but. <laughs> Can I just have this one little city in the valley? Can I dwell there? Well, what about that one? It, 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 it's, it's little. Is it, is it not little? In other words, am, am I asking too much here? And one of the angels says, behold, I grant you this favor also. <laughs> In other words, okay, I don't have to allow it, but I will. Then he says, escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you have arrived. And as soon as they escape the city, this brings us then to the climax of this story. Scene three. As soon as Lot and his family arrive at Zoar, it says in verse 24, Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord of heaven. And here you'll notice the author emphasizes that he destroyed everything. Look with me at verse 25. It says he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities. And he says, this is interesting, what grew on the ground. Now, remember, back in chapter 13, Lot chose to live in this valley because it looked well-watered. The stuff in the ground looked green and lush. It looked like the garden of the Lord. We're supposed to read this, and we're supposed to think, well, not anymore. (laughs) Not anymore. At the very end, we learn his wife looks back, probably because she loved that city a bit much. And she's turned to a pillar of salt. She's swept up in the punishment of the city. And then we get this abrupt cut back to Abraham. New scene, and this is where the claim comes into focus. Picture him walking out of that tent he was in, looking up to the horizon, and seeing the smoke like a furnace come up after he just had that conversation with God. And then the author tells us, so it was That when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overflow. So when we finally learn why God rescued Lot and his family, I want you to notice it is not because they were righteous in and of themselves. It's because he remembered Abraham and his promise to redeem all nations through Abraham. Now I'm convinced This is the lesson that Abraham had to learn. And this is the lesson I think God wants us to learn today. That no one is righteous enough to deserve God's mercy in and of themselves. Therefore, the claim of this text, it is incredibly merciful of God to rescue anyone. Anyone. In case you're not quite convinced... (laughs) Still haven't caught this lesson. Next, we get basically what amounts to a post-credit scene. (laughs) After the the titles have rolled, we have this strange scene with Lot and his descendants. We get a little glimpse into the lives of the ones he's rescued. Two things we should pick up on here. First, this entire story of Sodom and Gomorrah bears a striking resemblance to the story of the flood. Uh, First, no one is righteous. All of them are wicked all the time. God destroys everything. Notice they even seem to think it was a worldwide disaster, even though it wasn't. And, but yet he rescues a few. And then after he rescues those few, you think, hey, maybe they're righteous. And then there's some strange sexual encounter in a tent, which is also what happened with Noah back earlier in Genesis. It's happening again. The pattern continues. And so we're supposed to see that even the people God did rescue here did not deserve to be rescued. Just by saving these handful of people, the sin of Sodom continues. It continues on. We're also supposed to see that the children of these women conceived by their father Lot will go on to be two nations. The Moabites and the Amorites who will become the arch enemies of Israel. So as any ancient Israelite would have read this, they would have thought, whoa, 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 whoa. That's who he rescued from Sodom? We would have been so much better off if he would have just let them die in that city, which only further proves the point that it is incredibly merciful of God to rescue anyone. Anyone. It's a hard lesson. But I want to consider this together. I want to see what are a a few lessons maybe even we could learn here from this story. How does this apply to us today? What are we walking out of here with? Here's three takeaways I want to see. The first one is this, is that humans are far less righteous than we think. Humans are far less righteous than we think. Uh, These days, if we think in moral categories at all, uh, most modern people tend to just assume that people are basically good. Not to mention, if you assume or suggest that they're not, you must be motivated by hate. You must be one of these fire and brimstone people who believe about this God of the Bible. As we have grown less religious in general and certainly less Christian, we have moved further and further away from the categories of good and evil, righteousness and unrighteousness. Most people are far more comfortable chalking up all the heinous things that happen in the world to more observable phenomenon that can be explained by things like science, things like sickness of some sort or or a disorder of some sort. When people lash out and even really gravely harm others, we often are quick to attribute that to some sort of a trauma, it must be, that they have experienced in the past. Now, it may be true, but I want us to see We are constantly looking for ways to avoid even hinting at the idea that humans are unrighteous. And in many ways, you have to admit, it is at least understandable uh, to admit this point, number one, that humans are far less righteous than we think. It is a bit of a downer, is it not? (laughs) It is much easier, frankly, more convenient to just assume that we're all righteous. But what I want us to see in this passage is that this passage is meant to warn us against that kind of spiritually naive thinking. Like Abraham, we have a tendency to overestimate the moral character of human beings. And as noble as that may seem, because it makes us feel like we're kind of glass half full sort of people, I want you to see that it has grave devastating spiritual consequences. And as far as I can tell in this passage here, there are at least two reasons for that. The first is that it's just not true. It's just not true. People are not basically good. In and of ourselves, we are all unrighteous. We are God-haters, all of us. People do promise to be faithful to their spouse, and then they just walk out or abandon them. We do lie, we do cheat, and we steal, even in subtle ways, in order to serve ourselves. We do have the capacity to kill other humans made in God's image, or even to prey on those who are vulnerable. We've seen this week nations still do mount brutal invasions that could threaten the peace and stability, even potentially across Europe, even in the year 2022. Would we not have forgotten this lesson? I pray. These things are not just sad or traumatic. They are evil (laughs) and unrighteous. Not to mention in the scope of history, this kind of evil is not the exception for us. It's the norm. It's the true reflection of who we are apart from Christ. And if we don't have the category for human evil and depravity, we will either live in constant denial or dismay because over and over again, we will find ourselves face to face with it and we won't know what to do. When our loved one, who we thought was doing just fine, does take their own life, we see that they were not fine. They were They were tormented. That whole time. Or when the spouse or the significant other that we thought would be faithful to us does betray or abandon us in some just grievous way. Or when the chaos of war, which used to be just an idea we thought about in history books, does become a pressing, urgent reality in the world. Or worse, when we do some kind of grave evil and the weight of our sin bears down on us. Church, we need a category for the total depravity of human beings Uh, because chances are it will not be long before we experience it. It will not be long before we are either banging down the door ourselves, shocking ourselves or the, the door is being banged in for us. It will not be long before the smoke we see is billowing on the horizon and then finally the lesson will click that humans, including us, are not nearly as righteous as we may like to think. But more importantly, it is also dangerous to overestimate the moral character of humans. Because when we do, again, it almost always leads us to underestimate the moral character of God. Almost always. We see this in Abraham here. We see it all over the place today. When we reject this first lesson, when we assume that humans are basically righteous, it leads us to reject this next lesson as well, which is number two, that our punishment is far more just than we like to admit. See, if we assume people are more or less righteous, anytime we hear about a God who wants to judge them, we're not going to respect and revere that God at all. Like Abraham and like so many today, we will say, far be it from you, God, to judge us. We will call his character into question and say, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? As if we know and can define justice with greater accuracy than he. Maybe you've said something like this yourself or heard someone say it. I could never believe in a God who would fill in the blank. Usually, I would never believe in a God who would send someone to hell. What a wicked and terrible thing. Basically, what we're saying when we say this is, listen, I have a moral standard for God. And based on what it says he does in this book, he has violated my moral standard. Will not the judge of all the earth do what is just in my eyes? In our pride, we like to paint God out to be an angry, power-hungry, crude. Oh, you just love to rain down fire and sulfur on these poor, innocent people, don't you, God? But what we see here is that very instinct within us being both challenged and put to rest. Because the problem is not that he loves to smite innocent people. The problem is that there are none. There are none. When Abraham questions God's integrity and suggests he's just being unjust, he's overreacting, God basically says, oh, no, 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 that's not what's going on here. I'm a kind and merciful God. I don't enjoy judging sinners. If you'll remember, Abraham, I'm actually in the process of trying to redeem them all through this promise that I made to you. But, but let me just prove that for you. Go find me 10 righteous people in Sodom. I'll spare the whole thing. If Abraham wanted to question God's goodness and justice after that exchange, he would have had no grounds to do it. Church, this is a very grim truth that many, many, many people will just refuse to accept. But not only are we unrighteous, we deserve the punishment and condemnation of a holy God. If God gave us what we deserved, we would get what Sodom and Gomorrah have gotten in this story here. Now, I've heard it said before that is not hard to see in this passage, it's right there on the surface, but it is hard to swallow. It really is. If you're here today and if you are struggling to swallow that, if you're struggling to accept this, I just want to encourage you, please do consider, is that sincerely because it's not quite clear what this passage means or is it because you refuse to accept what it clearly says? And if so, could it be that the reason we think the God of the Bible is so unjust is because we're simply refusing to accept his diagnosis us. If our goal is to justify ourselves, then of course we will reject and roll our eyes at a God who pronounces judgment. Of course. The real question is: is He right to do it? And in this story, we can see very clearly that He is. He is just. Now you might be wondering: well, wait a minute, what about Abraham and what about Lot? He seems to get rescued here. It seems like they might be righteous. And without a doubt, we do see glimpses of righteousness in them. We saw in Carl's passages a few weeks ago, Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Not to mention, God does it's a remember Abraham here in rescue Lot. This is one of the great tensions that runs throughout the entirety of the Old Testament. Was Abraham and the long list of Israelites after him actually righteous? Was he or not? Is there something about Israel that makes them superior? Is that why God chose them? Well, after God does start to fulfill this promise and these descendants do dwell in this promised land, they will reject God yet again. as They do throughout the story. This nation, all of it. The promise, it seems, and everything will come tumbling down. And when it does, here's what the prophet Isaiah has to say. In Isaiah chapter 1, he says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up. He's talking about the promise. I did it. I raised up the children, Abraham's descendants, but they have rebelled against me. Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick. And the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot, even to the head, there is no Soundness in it. Picture the descendants of Israel reading this after this promise. Your country, it says, lies desolate. Your cities are burned with fire. In your very presence, foreigners devour this promised land. It is desolate as overthrown by foreigners. This, it seems, is what will come of God's promised people in this promised land. Here's where the story is headed the whole project will fail. Because of the unrighteousness of Abraham's descendants, they will not learn this lesson God has for them here. They will not do righteousness and justice in the land. Isaiah even says later in this chapter, this is key if the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. If the Lord had not left a few survivors just to keep that promise out there. The whole point of these Abraham narratives is that all the while it was God at work carrying out this promise. Through, yes, but often in spite of Abraham and his descendants. This is the promise only he can keep. And we get a little glimpse of how he does keep it here. So again, first, all humans far less righteous than we think. And our punishment is far more just than we like to admit. But next, without question, we are also supposed to see here that this God is far more merciful than we deserve. Think about this with me. Should God have remembered Abraham and rescued Lot from Sodom? Should he have kept blessing and multiplying Abraham's descendants? Should he have made a way for the nations to be blessed and redeemed? Did he have to? Was he obligated to? Would he have been a wicked, unjust God had he not? Listen, church, the Bible's answer to that question is an unequivocal no. He would not. This God would be perfectly just to have rescued no one which shines all the more brightly on our claim of the passage today, that it is incredibly merciful of him to rescue anyone. The world will tell us the exact opposite of this. The world will say, well, don't take all this sin stuff so seriously. Like, if there is a God and he is good, well, listen, he doesn't care about all of that stuff. We don't need his mercy. And if you do, by the way, take all this sin stuff seriously, listen, you're going to traumatize yourself. What you really need is more self-esteem. What you really need is more self-love. Now, I'm not advocating for self-hatred or self-loathing here, but I want us to see that that message is incompatible with the Christianity of the Bible. Paul says it this way in 1 Timothy 1. He says, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. He made a slogan out of it. That Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am foremost. Self-esteem is not a Christian virtue, friends. This is, but I receive mercy, he says, for this reason. That in me, As the foremost, as the sodomite, Jesus Christ might display his. Perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. No matter what you hear people say, listen, that does not produce shame in people. That produces praise in people. Because next Paul says, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen, church. If we are truly Christians today, that is not some demonstration of our wisdom or our righteousness. No, if we are in Christ, it is proof that this God is incredibly merciful. Let's not take that for granted. Let's not just assume, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm a Christian, so what? You know, it's not a big deal. No, it is a huge deal. It is a huge deal. This God has opened our eyes, church, by the power of the gospel, and he has shown us great kindness because he could easily have destroyed all of us Long, long ago, but instead, he promised to bless all nations through the descendants of Abraham. And in Christ, that is exactly what he has done. 1 John 2, John says this, says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, he says, the righteous, the truly righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, he says, just the Jews, but also for the sins of the whole world, including spiritually blind and perverted people like the Sodomites, including the enemies of God's chosen people like the Moabites and the Ammonites, including unrighteous people who fully deserve his judgment like me and like you. And so let's learn from this lesson that God had for Abraham today. Thankfully, by his mercy, we still can learn from it. And rather than insisting on our righteousness, rather than questioning this God's justice, let's take him at his word. Let's receive his spiritual diagnosis of us, and by faith, let's appeal to his mercy. He may just count that faith as righteousness and spare us from the destruction In Christ, we can be sure, in fact, he will. Let's pray together. Father God, you have revealed yourself in this story, God, in ways that have perplexed and confounded people for a long, long time. Ironically, much of the mockery we see of you in this passage is often repeated when Sodom and Gomorrah as referenced and fire and sulfur are referenced in our world. But would we here see Twin truths, God, that we are not nearly as righteous as we think, but you are far more merciful than we deserve, God. And in humility, would we today respond in faith? Would we cling to Jesus, the promised offspring of Abraham, through whom our blessing flows? We do not deserve him, God. And yet you have given him to us. And with him, your grace. Be with us now as we sing in Jesus' name, amen.